Greetings, friends, and welcome back to The Heart of Spurgeon, a podcast with me, Jeremy Walker, working through the God-honoring, Christ-exalting, spirit-dependent sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great preacher of Christ from the Victorian period in London, in England, a man gifted by God to make known Jesus Christ. Our concern in this podcast is not so much to exalt Spurgeon, but to learn from him of the Christ whom he exalted, and to learn how better to exalt Christ for ourselves as Christians, and perhaps particularly as those who preach or listen to preaching, how to pray for preachers, how to pursue real preaching. This week, we are moving into the New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 3, the first six collections of Spurgeon's sermons. The annual collections are entitled The New Park Street Pulpit, and this is the third volume. And if you're wanting to follow along, this week we're reading sermons 108 through to 114 and concentrating particularly on Psalm, on Psalm, on uh, Sermon 111. Now, uh, if you want to follow along and know what you're looking for each week, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's at Reading Spurgeon. Or you can head to the Media Gratii website and follow along through the the, uh, blog pages to find From the Heart of Spurgeon. And there's a sign-up link there for a weekly email where you can find out what we're reading, either to read day by day one sermon or to read week by week that particular selection. And that particular selection for this week is that Sermon 111, preached early in January, uh, the 4th of 1857, on a Sunday morning at the Music Hall, Royal Surrey Gardens. Spurgeon's text on that occasion is from Isaiah 63 and verse 1. Now, the verse as a whole asks, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, travelling in the greatness of his strength. And the answer is given, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now, this is what you might call a an idea sermon or a, a concept sermon. I can't say that anybody else has ever called it that, but it's perhaps how I'm going to think of it uh, as we work through it today. Spurgeon's zeroing in on just that last phrase, mighty to save. He uh, often does this. It's uh, not just a verse, but sometimes even a phrase within a verse where he does what you you might call a deep dive and, and really looks at what this means. Now, there are times when uh, you might say he's not as careful as he should be to exegete the text accurately, but this is an interesting introduction because it's very clear that he is trying to keep that phrase in its context. He begins that the verse refers, of course, to our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, who is described as coming from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra, and who, when it is questioned who he is, replies, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now, That means that Spurgeon wants us to understand that the person who declares himself mighty to save, who is spoken of as having this power to save, is a particular person identified in that particular passage. 
Now, he's going to again concentrate in his introduction on the fact that we must believe as Christians that Christ is God and yet a man. Very God, equal and co-eternal with the Father, possessing, as his Father does, all divine attributes in an infinite degree. But we're equally taught to believe that he is man. He came from heaven and became man as well as God, taking upon himself the nature of a babe in the manger of Bethlehem. And from that babe he grew to the stature of manhood and became bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh in everything except our sin. So Spurgeon wants us to understand whosoever would have clear and right views of Jesus must not mingle his natures. We must not consider him as a God diluted into deified manhood or as a mere man officially exalted to the Godhead, but as being two distinct natures in one person, not God melted into man nor man made into God, but man and God taken into union together. Therefore do we trust him as the daysman, the mediator, son of God and son of man. And it is this distinct person who is our saviour. Theology is important to Spurgeon and it should be important to me and you. Theology proper, a real, right, accurate view of the God of the Bible and Christology, the person of Christ, because the mediator must be all that the scriptures declare him to be must be this God-man, two distinct natures in one person. And if he is not that, and this is Spurgeon's point, he is not mighty to save. Now, Spurgeon says that if you know your Bible, you already believe Jesus to be the regent of providence, the king of death, the conqueror of hell, the lord of angels, the master of storms, and the god of battles. And you can need no proof, therefore, that he is mighty. But he wants to concentrate on this particular idea, this leading thought that he is mighty to save. This is one part of of his mightiness. And here's this sense then in which Spurgeon is going to take this phrase with this leading idea, this particular concept of the mightiness to save of the God-man Jesus Christ, and he's going to turn that in front of us. And he's going to do it, as he sets out in his outline, by asking what is meant by the words to save, how we prove the fact that he's mighty to save, the reason why he's mighty to save, and then the inferences which are to be deduced from this doctrine that Jesus Christ is indeed mighty to save. Now those are going to be his main headings. Unlike some sermons, he doesn't have uh, distinct subheadings really. There's a few firstly, secondly, thirdlies, especially toward the end, but it's more this coherent development of the idea. There's something uh, more seamless about the way in which he develops this idea through the sermon. And so he begins by asking, what are we to understand by the words to save? And as we work through this, you'll see that Spurgeon the preacher is, is starting to struggle to hold a couple of ideas in his mind. Now, when I say that, I'm trying to communicate that he he has this quite rich and full notion of salvation, but he's not ignorant 
of a, a more narrow and limited sense. And the reason why he's trying to keep both of these ideas in his mind is because toward the end of the sermon, he's going to use them to make some particular applications. So he he kind of pushes them into the foreground or background a little bit as he needs to. So here's his, his first idea. When people read these words, most consider them to mean salvation from hell in a limited sense. And he says that's partially correct, but the notion is highly defective. It's too limited. It's not enough. It's true, but it's not the whole truth. And he says, if you only go that far, then it lies at the root of mistakes which many theologians have made and surrounded their system of divinity with mist. There's a a whole of a great work of salvation that is bound up in the idea of salvation from the first holy desire, the first spiritual conviction, onward to complete sanctification, all this done of God through Jesus Christ. So Spurgeon's saying, don't limit the notion of salvation. Don't reduce it to one single moment in time to the the, the outworking of the the choice of God in the moment of conversion. It is that, but it's vastly more than that. He also wants us to understand that Christ didn't come merely to make men salvable or savable, to put them in a state from which or in which they could be delivered, but actually to save them. Christ does not make sinners savable. Christ saves sinners. He doesn't put them where they can save themselves, but he does the work in them and for them from the first even to the last. He says, if it, if it was a simple matter of making you savable, I would give up preaching because he doesn't think anybody would ever then be saved if it was a mere salvability. But he dis- does believe that there is might going forth with the word of Jesus, which makes men willing in the day of his power and which turns them from the error of their ways by the mighty, overwhelming, constraining force of a divine and mysterious influence without which we would cease to glory in the cross of Christ. So the Lord Jesus is mighty absolutely and entirely to save sinners. And he takes it as the highest proof of Christ's power, not that he offers salvation alone, not that he bids you take it if you want it, but that even when you reject it, hate it, despise it, he has a power whereby he can change your mind, think, make you think differently from your former thoughts and turn you from the error of your ways. And so he now develops the rest of that idea that he is mighty to keep men Christians after he has made them so and mighty to preserve them in his fear and love until he consummates their spiritual existence in heaven. He says, We hold and teach and we believe upon scriptural authority that all men under whom Christ has given repentance must infallibly hold on their way. We do believe that God never begins a good work in a man without finishing it, that he never makes a man truly alive to spiritual things without carrying on that work in his soul even to the end by giving him a place among the choirs of the sanctified. Now this is 
uh, quite a a Calvinian or Calvinistic notion of salvation. When John Calvin talks about salvation, he is typically seems to have in mind that whole process, the whole uh, complex, complete reality of being brought from death to life kept in life, enjoying that life more abundantly and brought at last into the full experience of that life in the glory which is to come. So it's a big picture salvation. And it's important for us to ask, do I have such a big picture salvation? Or do I tend to strip salvation down? Do I limit it? Do I leave it something that's uh, quite weak and, and scrawny and incomplete? Because when the the prophet Isaiah speaks of salvation, when God speaks in his servant of salvation here, it's this big picture salvation. It's finding us, bringing us, watching over us, keeping us, blessing us all our journey through until we come to the end. And it's the Jesus of the Bible, the God-man, who does this. Now, The second question he's going to ask is, how can we prove that? How do we prove that Christ is mighty to save? How do we know for sure that this big picture salvation has been accomplished by the Lord Jesus? And he says, we're going to give you the strongest argument first, and we only need one. And the simple argument is that he has done it. He has saved men. And he uses a number of different examples, uh, not least from uh, some missionary endeavours, to, to say this is what God has in fact done. He doesn't merely put the seed into the ground that he has prepared beforehand, but Christ ploughs the ground too. Yes, he harrows it and does the whole of the work. It's not a mere morality that is worked out here. It's not a, a an empty shallow surface reworking, but it's a true spiritual renovation. It's a a gospel that does more than just tidy up the life. It makes life new in the heart of a sinner. And then he comes to the example of John Newton, an example of the power of God to change the heart, as well as to give peace when the heart is is changed. A man brought from the the worst kind of degradations and wickednesses to be a true preacher of the gospel. And his point is that nothing but this gospel of Christ is going to save sinners in the way that Christ saves sinners. If it's anything else, it's a poor dilution of Christianity. If it's something like it, but not the bold, broad Christianity of the Bible, not the full gospel of the blessed God, it will not have power to save. And then he turns the screw a little bit and drives it home. The best proof you can ever have of God's being mighty to save, dear hearers, is that he saved you. He's asking, don't you realise that you yourself are a sinful creature. Aren't you yourself a wonderful example of the power of God to save? That's your your first and best proof. And it's interesting here how Spurgeon insists upon experimental religion as the best proof of Christianity. 
Now he's not a stupid man. We we hope I hope you know that. Uh he's he's not afraid to reason things out. But he doesn't rely on mere apologetics. He wants the truth to be known and felt, and he believes that that's the greatest eloquence that the gospel can have when it is spoken by a man or a woman who knows its saving power. Now, why is Christ mighty to save? Here's the third uh, question that he's going to ask. And this is where you start to get into a few firstly and secondlies in these last two points of this four-point sermon. First, he says, if we understand the word save in its popular acceptation, which is not, after all, the full one, though a true one. So he's going back to that more limited understanding. If we understand salvation to mean the pardon of sin and salvation from hell, Christ is mighty to save because of the infinite efficacy or effectiveness of his atoning blood. So what's interesting here is that Spurgeon, the gospel preacher, doesn't want to lose the force of of that moment of salvation for which he's preaching. He, he wants to make sure that you realize that that is most definitely included. It's not the only thing that's included, but you may be saved by trusting in this Jesus because he died to make a sinner clean. If you know and feel yourself to be a sinner, he says, if you have no hope or refuge before God but in Christ, then let it be known to you that Christ is able to forgive because he was once punished for the very sin which you have committed and therefore he can freely remit, forgive, put away because the punishment has been entirely paid by himself. So he's saying here that if you reduce it to the very narrowest compass, if you boil it down to that essence of passing from death to life, then yes, Christ is mighty to save because God did not turn away the sword of justice from his son, but sheathed it in his heart. He did not remit the debt for it was paid in drops of precious blood and the great receipt is now nailed to the cross and our sins with it so that we may go free if we are believers in him. So he's saying don't limit it to the narrow sense, but if you take it there, Christ is mighty to save there because of his sacrificial death. But now go back to that large sense of the word, that big picture salvation. How is it that Christ is mighty to save, able to make men repent and believe and make them turn to God? Someone might say, well, eloquent preachers, God forbid we should ever say that, he says. It is not by might or by power. Others will answer, well, it's the force of moral suasion or persuasion. Oh, God forbid we should say yes to that, says Spurgeon, for it's been tried long enough on men and yet has failed of success. So how does God do this? In what way does Christ work out this so great salvation? We answer, he says, by something which some of you despise, but which nevertheless is a fact. He does it by the omnipotent influence of his divine spirit. Yes, the preaching is the instrument, but the Holy Spirit is the great agent. It is certain that the truth is the means of saving, but it is the Holy Ghost applying the truth which saves souls. 
All heaven, the heavenly result of preaching, he says, is owing to the divine spirit sent from above. Now, it's vital that we understand this in our day. Even among some evangelical believers, there's this uh, increasing expectation that, that a preacher is going to be a talker, uh, that it's, it's essentially a, a Bible study that uh, you you only need someone who's a, a reasonable communicator. And as long as he's a reasonable communicator of Bible truth, then uh, that's all that's really needed. And let's not for a moment deny the Spirit's ability to bless the feeblest, weakest, most... Oh, what shall we say? lifeless preaching. I mean, the fact that he blesses any preaching is a marvel of grace. But Spurgeon wants the preacher to go into the pulpit in active dependence upon the Holy Ghost. He wants us to understand that we are utterly dependent upon the Spirit sent from above, and that without his influence, the most persuasive or eloquent preacher is going to be dead in the water. So there's a real Trinitarianism here to his notion of preaching. Yes, God sends the messenger, Christ is the message, but it's by the influence of the Holy Spirit that Christ works in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. Now, the fourth point what are the inferences to be derived? And these are really Spurgeon's applications. What should we take away from this, uh, this doctrine that Christ is mighty to save as the God-man, that he is uh, saving in the fullest sense of the word, that he is proving it because he is already doing it in our hearts and in the hearts of many more, and that he does it by the inward working of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those to whom the word of God is faithfully preached. So what difference does that make is, is really the fourth point. Well, here's a lesson for preachers, that they should endeavour to preach in faith nothing wavering. And he knows what it's like to be a preacher of the gospel on your knees saying, I am weak, I've preached to my hearers, I've wept over them, I've groaned for them, but they will not turn to you. Their hearts are like the nether millstone. They will not weep for sin, nor will they love the Saviour. And then in one of those little imaginative moments that he seems to delight in, I think I see an angel standing at his elbow, whispering in his ear, yes, you are weak, but he is strong. You can do nothing, but he is mighty to save. Here's the encouragement for the preacher. It's not the instrument, but the God. It's not the pen with which the author writes, which has the praise of his wisdom or the making of the volume. It's the brain that thinks it and the hand that moves the pen. And so in salvation, it is not the minister, it is not the preacher, but the God who first designs the salvation and afterward uses the preacher to work it out. Now, too many preachers, having tried to preach the gospel and knowing that they are not very good at doing it, do despair of not just themselves, but the gospel. 
and seek to find something else and perhaps turn to eloquence or moral persuasion or, or, or stop expecting God to bless. No, says Spurgeon, preach a Christ who is mighty to save in dependence upon his might and the work of the Holy Spirit. God will help you. But there's also encouragement, not just for the preacher, but for the prayer, the men and women who are pleading with God for their friends. That might be a, a mother, it might be a father, it might be a friend, and you're, you've been praying and you've been groaning over your children, your companions, wherever it may be, and, and you think, oh, there's no point, I'll give up, there's no point praying for him again. Stop, stop, says Spurgeon. By all that is holy and all that is heavenly, stop. Do not utter that resolution again. Begin praying once more. Because it is God's delight to answer prayers. And he tells a, a story of a, of a father, a Christian father, who died in deep distress because his children were unconverted. And it was the very distress of their dying father, who was a Christian man, that moved the sons to then go and hear the word of God, and God in his mercy was pleased to bless them. The God who had never answered the father's prayer in his life had answered it not just after his death, but by his death, and by such a death as would appear to be most unlikely to have worked the conversion of any. So here's an encouragement. Pray, pray, pray. Pray to the God who is mighty to save that he would, by his beloved Son, bring many to himself. And don't be afraid to go on pleading and praying for your particular ones, your sons, your daughters, your friends, your parents, your, your brothers and sisters according to the flesh. Ask God and do not stop, for he is mighty to save. And then one last encouragement. To those who have no love to God, no love to his Christ, but who have a desire in their hearts to love him. Those who are, we might say, feeling themselves sinners and understand that at this point they are not converted. They are apart from God in Christ and who may now be beginning to be deeply grieved over their sins and are longing to have their sins forgiven and to be brought to, to know the blessings of salvation. He is mighty to save, says Spurgeon. This is comfort for you. Do you think yourself the worst of men? Does conscience smite you as with a mailed fist? Does conscience say it's all over with you? You'll be lost. Your repentance is pointless. Your prayers will not be heard. Do not believe it. Christ is mighty to save. If you can't pray, he can help you. If you can't repent, he can give you repentance. If it's hard for you to believe, he can grant you faith, for he is exalted on high to give repentance as well as remission of sins. So the mightiness of Christ to save is a reason for the sinner to turn to him and cast him or herself upon him. He is ready to receive you. He is eager to deliver you. He will glorify his father and he will demonstrate the wonder and the excellence of his finished work by receiving you, by delivering you, by saving you in his sovereign might. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker, and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. 
For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.